0: If you'll join me in Exodus chapter 20, today we conclude our series, 10 words, the law of God. This morning we will look at the 10th word, desire and delight, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, our key words for our worshipers in training are covet, content, and desire. A while back in the magazine Christianity Today, a writer named Mark Buchanan wrote an article called, Trapped in the Cult of the Next Thing. If ever there was a cult that gave us stones when we asked for bread, this is it. Here's what he wrote. I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words, more. You deserve it, new, faster, cleaner, brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it, instant credit, no down payments, deferred payment, no interest for three months. It has its own preachers and evangelists and prophets and apostles, admen, pitchmen, and celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, meccas, its malls and superstores and club warehouses. It has its own sacraments, credit and debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experiences, the spending spree. The cult of the next things central message proclaims crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. And sanctification is measured by never saving enough. For the cult teaches that our lives are measured by the abundance of our possessions. And those caught up in the cult of the next thing live endlessly, relentlessly for, well, the next thing. The next weekend the next vacation, the next purchase, the next experience. And for us, the impulse to seek the next thing is an instinct bred into us so young it seems genetic. It's our paradigm, our way of seeing. It's our unifying myth. How could the world be otherwise? It's very easy to enlist in the cult of thing of the next thing, isn't it? All around us, the next best thing is constantly yelling for us. Buy it now, 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 constantly on us. And Western marketing and materialism has become so entrenched into our daily lives that for many of us, Buying something new and having the feel and the smell of the next greatest thing produces a drug-like feeling of want. I have to have it. And when the high and the euphoria of that purchase wears off, we're instantly looking for our next hit. And for some, it's so bad. The medical community has even identified it as compulsive shopping addiction which has many of the same elements as alcoholism and eating disorders and drug abuse. The effects of this sin are so deep that we are rarely ever satisfied with what we have. There's always a craving for something new, something more We want more. We want better. We want faster. We want, we want, we want, we want, we want, we want. And so instead of being content, we covet. We covet. Coveting is not a new phenomenon. It did not come with the rise of them all. It has always been a serious sin of the human heart. Look at Exodus 20 and verse 17 together. The Lord God commands us you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, all the great catechisms of the Reformed tradition of the past have set. Uh, the 10th commandment as the summary commandment of the preceding five. It's the summary commandment of what Jesus condensed into loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Martin Luther said this commandment is not addressing those that we usually put behind bars and consider real criminals, but rather those that think that they have actually conformed to God's law. It's the final blow to the self-righteous among us. And so if we've gotten to this point and you can possibly rationalize in your mind that you are guiltless of the other nine commandments, this commandment is surely the one, the only necessary piece of evidence to prove that you are in fact a lawbreaker. The Apostle uh, Apostle James reminds us, if we're guilty of breaking one of God's laws, we're guilty of breaking them all. Our Baptist catechism asks, what is forbidden in the 10th commandment? The answer, the 10th commandment forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. One writer explains that coveting is a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to another. And so the best way to understand the 10th commandment is you shall not set your desires on your neighbor's whatever, house or prestige, or whatever it is. So the issue of covetousness is an issue of desires in the heart. The longing of the heart, the wanting of the heart. And that desire takes on several different forms. But before I give you those forms, I want to make clear that we're talking about desire in the negative uh, negative sense. Desire in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, our our sanctification, our growth as Christians is all about rightly orienting our desires on God Himself and the means that He has provided for us to walk in godliness. And so being a Christian means that we desire God above all things, all other relationships, everything. And so Christianity really is all about desire. Namely, what and whom we desire. Psalm 73, 25, and 26, the psalmist writes Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is that your heart? If it is Christ that we desire, our desires are rightly oriented. We are walking in obedience to the Lord and the godliness that He has called us to. The Bible tells us to delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. It's a command. Delight yourself in God. And in a very positive sense, the the psalmist is calling us to desire God. And when we do, He will give us greater measures of godliness. So when our desire is godly, when what we are longing for out of our hearts is Godward in focus, it's a wonderful thing that we need not deny. It's just a fact that the human heart is constantly producing desires. And we must conclude that's how God has created it. The human heart produces desire as surely as a fire produces heat. I can't help it. The heart pumps out desire after desire for what is perceived to be a happier future. Our heart's desire is whatever it is that our hearts assume will bring us the greatest joy, the highest pleasure in the days ahead. Whatever that might be, good or bad. And none of us can deny that reality, but here's the very important element in our understanding of our desire. It is the condition of the heart that is judged by the kinds of desires that hold sway over it. In other words, what you desire and what you assume will bring you greater satisfaction is an indication of the state of your heart. If it is satisfied with God, it is a godly heart. Henry Skogal said, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its desire. So the question we must all ask ourselves as we consider the 10th commandment is, what do I desire? What am I seeking my satisfaction in? Now, it's important for us to understand these categories. The difference between godly desire and ungodly desire. The distinction needs to be made because desire in itself is not evil. The evil is determined by what is desired. The focus of the 10th commandment is mainly on ungodly desire. Desires of the flesh that do not honor God, that do not honor His law. So let's consider the various stages of desire. There are four stages. The first is an inadvertent desire. We've all experienced this. Immediately, out of nowhere, we get caught off guard By some desire. We could be completely focused on something else when suddenly we have a thought, we have an image, someone's comment triggers a desire. A desire that only seconds ago wasn't even present. Now, dependent on what you do with that desire as it comes about determines whether or not it's suddenly embedded into your heart. And it determines how deadly it might become. And as we grow in grace, as we grow as believers in Christ, we become more aware of that when it happens to us. And we'll develop a means by which we're able to reorient our heart's focus away from whatever wickedness has crept in. And a little later, I'll help you with a device, hopefully, that you may be able to use in this. Our goal, then, as we have these desires that are inadvertent, is that we recognize them immediately and reorient our heart, that we not be tempted toward covetousness. But what happens when it finds a lodging place in our hearts? The next step of desire is to nurse it. It presents itself, we dwell on it, and then we begin to nurse it. We think about it. We contemplate the outcome of it. We we fulfill it in our mind and in our heart, and we work through all the steps of what it is. And this is when we think, if only it were mine. ever been there? If only that were my job or my house or my fame or my money or my intellect or my wife or my husband or my children, if only. And we think about what that would be like. In our minds, we put ourselves in the position of having whatever the desired thing is. And we grow that attraction in our hearts. It becomes sweeter. We want it more and more and more until it inevitably inevitably becomes something we insist that we need. It's a big difference between something we see and want and then when we determine that it's something all of a sudden we need. So the desire... Presents itself, the desire is nursed, and the craftiness of our deceptive hearts brings us to the next stage, which is planning. We develop a plan to fulfill our desires. We think through the details, all the various scenarios of what can happen, the possible consequences, maybe even the necessary lies. Everything that is necessary to give birth to our desire. And once we've gotten to this point, we will go out of our way to sin, won't we? This is when we reach the the very last step of our desire. We've developed a plan, and all that is left is the fourth step, and that is to execute it. We have it all down in our minds. It's taken over our hearts. And so then we fulfill it. And we are doing it, if able, by whatever means necessary. And as a result, we've effectively created an idol. And to get our hands on that idol, we're going to do whatever it takes. We will lie, we will forego sleep, we'll set up new email accounts, we will get another cell phone, we'll get another bank account. You name it, whatever it takes, we're going to do it in order that we can give birth to that desire and live it out. And depending on the breadth of the sin, a covetous heart that has gotten to the place of planning and executing what it so desperately desires is a heart that will lead a person to places they never thought they would go. I meet with a lot of people, and I hear a lot of stories that involve evil desires that are eventually lived out. And I have yet to hear anybody tell me that their initial intention with their sinful desire ended where they thought it would. Not once. Without fail, they always saw it end in a way they didn't want it to, and were far worse off than where it began. And so we see that very, very quickly, sometimes in a small way, sometimes in a very big way. One can move from having an inadvertent desire to nursing that desire to planning out how that desire is going to come about and then doing everything possible to turn that desire into a deed. A desire turns into an action. Now, this covetousness, this goes all the way back to the garden we see in the garden that before Eve ate of the fruit, she coveted it. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Why did she eat of the tree? Not because she desired the fruit itself. She had all the fruit that she could want in the garden. Eve took of the fruit because Satan tempted her to covetousness by telling her that if she ate it, she would be like God. So Eve took the fruit to gain something that she was not intended to have. So let's, let's walk through those stages of desire with Eve, the inadvertent desire. I believe that Adam and Eve had every intention of obeying God in the garden. They had no reason not to. <laughs> they were in a state of complete innocence and God had given them everything that they needed. And then out of nowhere, Eve encounters Satan who tells her, you know, you can be like God. And there it is. The decision we make in that instant, when that temptation is presented is something that becomes the difference sometimes between life and death. It was for Adam and Eve, right? But there it is. A desire that she never had before now is in her heart, it's in her mind. And what does she decide to do with it? She nursed the desire. She thought on it. She molded over and in her mind was thinking, I wonder what it would be like to be like God. <laughs> you know, I kind of like that idea. What if I was like God? If only I could be like God. And so, a simple plan, very simple plan. I'm going to eat the tree and see what happens. After all, maybe, maybe the serpent is right. Maybe I won't die when I eat it. And that's just something that I don't need to worry about. I'm just going to eat it. What's the worst that can happen? And then she ate it. She gave some to Adam. And we all know the rest of the story. It happens like that. And it all begins with a heart that covets something that was never intended to be ours in the first place. And we've been sinning the same way ever since. I, I can tell you if... You want to see this in action. I guarantee that spending one Sunday over there in the nursery. Watch one child pick up a toy that the other child didn't even know existed a minute ago. But now that they have it in their hands, the others want it more than anything that exists in the world. It was like dirt four seconds ago, but now they will do whatever it takes to get it. That's the child's version, but we do the same the very same thing. It's maybe a little more sophisticated. Covetousness is what causes that little twinge of disappointment when someone else gets what we want. When your coworker gets the promotion instead of you. When all of your best friends are getting married while you remain single. Or when your neighbors go on a vacation somewhere you've never even dreamed of being able to go. We're always comparing ourselves to others, aren't we? And quite frankly, we're never content with what we find. The Apostle James asks, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, there are all kinds of things that we can covet. And usually when we're coveting, we're not coveting something that in and of itself is a bad thing. It's not wrong to think that a new iPad would be pretty cool. It is. But to what extent will you go in order to get it? How much of your life is consumed by it? Are you genuinely down and depressed because you don't have it? You've got a problem. Usually when we think about covetousness, we associate it with material possessions, and rightly so. The commandment itself addresses various forms of property because this is where we fall down so frequently. Consumption has become our way of life. No matter how much we have, we want more and we want better. And the Israelites prove this in the wilderness over and over and over again. We get manna from heaven, but you know, it's great for a little while. After a while, we're tired of it. God, we want something else. Are you kidding me? Your food is falling from the sky. You want something else? Covetousness is in our hearts. The Israelites proved it with food and drink, their situation, whatever it was. We prove it with our credit cards. So very often, advertising is as successful as it is because we seem to be unable to keep the 10th commandment. The American writer Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, Things are in the saddle and ride mankind. (laughs) We usually call it chasing the American dream. The Bible calls it coveting. what else do we covet? The commandment mentions your neighbor's wife. Now, obviously, this is a reminder of the seventh commandment. But the lust of the eyes, the lust of the heart, is a form of coveting. David lusted after Bathsheba, and as a result, he coveted his neighbor's wife. You can walk through those steps of desire with David very easily. So covetousness goes well beyond tangible things. It is any desire of the heart that causes us to seek our ultimate pleasure in people or in things specifically when those people or things are not ours to have. And when we do this, we're feeding a sinful desire that will soon demand to be gratified. And notice that God wraps everything together at the end of this commandment by saying, or anything else that's your neighbor's. Just in case you thought there was a loophole, anything else at your neighbor's. That pretty much covers it. Someone else's attributes, someone else's situation in life, someone else's spiritual attainment and gifts. We are commanded to not covet anything at all. God's law rules Every unlawful desire. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, As a ferryman takes in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks the boat, so a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he downs himself in perdition. In other words, coveting can sink us down to hell as fast as any other sin. When we understand the sinfulness of covetousness, we begin to understand our desperate need for our Savior. This is the grace of God to reveal to us just how sinful we are by presenting us with our sin. And the more of our sin we see, the more we see of our need for Jesus. It's made vivid, it's made very intense. This is the very effect the 10th commandment had on the apostle Paul. Paul went through the first part of his life assuming that he could measure up to the perfect standard of God's law. He did not murder. He did not commit adultery. He did not steal. He did not lie. At least he didn't do any of these things outwardly. But then Paul came to the 10th commandment. And as we've all experienced over the last several weeks, the law exposed his sin. Here's how he described his experience. Romans 7, 7 and 8, Paul says of himself, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin." For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So you see, Paul recognized that the 10th commandment took away from us any notion whatsoever that we might have had, that we were able to keep the law of God. It's not possible. Francis Schaeffer wrote, Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a Savior. The average such moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel, like Paul, that he is getting along all right. But suddenly, when he is confronted with the inward command not to covet, he is brought to his knees. And so we see what is forbidden in the 10th commandment very clearly, right? But what is required? Of the 10th commandment. Again, our Baptist catechism provides us with the helpful answer. The 10th commandment requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. In other words, don't covet, but be content. Easy enough, right? <laughs> well, in theory, it's easy. If God wanted us to have more, we would have it. If we needed different gifts to enable us to glorify God, we would have those gifts. If we were ready for the job promotion that we want, He would put us into it. If we were supposed to have different circumstances in life, the circumstances would be different. So the requirement of the 10th commandment is that instead of saying, if only this, God calls us to glorify him in the fullest right here and right now in whatever situation we are in and learn, as the apostle Paul wrote while he was in prison, to be content. There's a very strong emphasis on contentment all throughout the Bible. Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy and tells him, godliness is. With contentment is great gain. This is one of the reasons that those who tell you that God wants you to be rich and God wants you to drive the nicest car and wear the nicest clothes and have the biggest house and go on the most luxurious vacations and all the finest pearls and on and on and on. These clowns are quite obviously overlooking the fact that the great apostle was in chains when he wrote, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. The desire for health and wealth and prosperity that is not ours because we do not have it is not godly. It is not biblical. It is covetous. For a man to stand before a people in a $5,000 suit after flying in on his private jet and telling them that God wants them to be healthy and wealthy and wearing the finest of linens and driving the nicest of cars while they're suffering from cancer and living on food stamps and giving their last dollar to this man in hopes that they're going to get some benefit from it is wicked to the core. It is a covetous man taking advantage of the weak and encouraging them to also be covetous by the means of obtaining some physical monetary blessing that is not theirs to have. Do you see what I have? Well, you can have it too if you just give more and more and more. More and more to who? To you. The words are different, but the results are the same. Don't you want to be like God? It is an absolute distortion of the word of God. And such talk is full of the fire of hell, not the grace and mercy of heaven. The call of godliness is contentment in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, not building bigger and bigger barns to store the pitiful trinkets that have no comparison to the glory of God that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And sadly, millions are deceived by these charlatans. They've been led to think that God is a big genie in the sky who fulfills all their covetous desires. If they just give a few more dollars to the preacher, man, that's garbage. Set it on fire because such nonsense has no place among the people of God. The call in the Christian life is to contentment, no matter what the circumstances are. And while we can understand that to be true, actually being content is a completely different issue altogether, isn't it? How do we do it? How can we be content? We have seen what God forbids in the 10th commandment. We have also looked at what is required by God. Do not covet, but rather be content. But the big question remains, how? So I want to help you with some application. God has given us every means necessary in this life to be content. And the source of those means is the word of God. So how does the truth of the word of God help us to kill the deceitful desires of our sinful hearts and set us free to find joy in the only place that it can be found, namely in Jesus Christ? One of the keys to this is what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.13. He writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says, if by the Spirit you put desires to death. How do you do that? What is that? Well, to put something to death, what do you need? You need a weapon. So what weaponry do we have at our our disposal? What weapon has the Lord given us for the spiritual battle that we wage each and every day? The sword. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. That's what Paul calls it in Ephesians 6. The sword of the Spirit. In other words, it is by knowing and believing and trusting the Word of God that we are able to kill sin. Paul implies the same thing in Galatians three five. The way we can destroy covetousness is to hear and to believe the word of God when it says that God and his ways are more to be desired than whatever we are coveting could ever offer to us. Nothing, nothing in this world can surpass in value and depth and height and durability the pleasure that God promises. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 36, eight: you give them drink from the river of your delights. Psalm 16.11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 4.7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have with their grain and wine abounding. Luke 6.23, rejoice in the day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven. Nothing, not one thing you can mention surpasses the joy of all that God promises for his children. So when we covet, we are settling for lesser things. How foolish! We're only shorting ourselves. So the fight for contentment is the fight to see and believe Christ as more to be desired than the promises of whatever in this world that we might covet. And this faith, this sight comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We look to the word, we ponder, we plead with God that we have the eyes of our hearts opened to see the superior glory and joy that is revealed in Jesus Christ. So I can tell you with absolute certainty, if you neglect the word of God, you will never win the battle against covetousness ever i give you even more practical help in this. I've been tremendously helped by a device that I initially learned from John Piper and have adapted it for my own use. It is in the form of an acronym, APTAT. It doesn't mean anything. It's just letters that we will use. I'll explain it. And then I will try to illustrate it using covetousness. So A, admit. John 15, 5 says, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we have to admit, and I have to have the understanding that I cannot do anything of any spiritual effect whatsoever apart from the work of Christ. So every situation, I need to simply admit, I cannot do it. I am not capable of doing it. I will fail. I can't do it. I need to admit that up front with every situation I encounter. So A, P, pray. God, help me. I can't do it. I need you. I'm desperate for you. I'm desperate for your help, for your provision. I need to have you. Admit, pray, trust. Here's where the word of God comes into play how do I know anything that I know about God and what He has promised to His children? His Word. So now I need to turn to His Word and trust what He has promised. This is the key to it all. Yes, I need prayer. It is the fuel. But the engine that's going to drive me through whatever I'm facing is the promise that God has provided to me in His Word. This is how the Holy Spirit works. We trust a specific promise in the scriptures A P T A. a we then must act we have to take action we can't just sit on the couch and eat cheetos and wait for god to act for us we've got to get up and get moving and get to work and we've admitted we can't do it we've asked god to do it for us we've trusted a specific promise in his word and now we have to act have a hard phone call to make, pick it up, dial the numbers. With your fingers, with your will, dial and talk. You've got to act. You've got to do it. You've just said you can't do it. You've just cried out for help. You've just trusted a promise that God will do it for you and carry you through and give you wisdom and give you courage and give you perseverance. And now you're acting in reliance upon the promise coming true that you have trusted in. That's walking by faith. That's the Christian life. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work it out. Act. And that is what God is doing. What is he working in you? His word. His promises. It is the Holy Spirit of God causing you to take steps and to believe and to trust God's promise. A P T A, and the last T is thank. Thank God in prayer. Thank you, God, for helping me again. I couldn't do it on my own. Thank you. So let's apply this to covetousness and then we'll be done. If you are a Christian, covetousness comes on strong when you begin to lose your contentment in Jesus you're starting to feel, if I don't have this thing, whatever that thing is, if I don't have some specific job or promotion or certain amount of money or husband, wife, child, iPad, vacation, freedom from suffering, whatever it is, if I don't have this thing, and you want it so bad that you can't stand it and you crave it and you long for it, and when you don't have it, you lose joy and contentment, you're coveting. And you're coveting an idol. In fact, you may want it so badly that you're tempted to say, if I don't get this from God, I'm done. I'm walking away from the faith. I'm giving up. There's no reason to walk in obedience. There's no reason to persevere and to press on. I'm done with this. And desire will begin to conquer you and it will all be over something you don't even need. What do you need? You need Jesus. He's all you need. And he is far more than you deserve already. We've got to get our minds around that. And we've got to get our hearts in that. What do I need? I need Jesus. So what do you do? Admit. Whatever the craving, whatever the desire I can't beat this. It's too strong. I want it really, really bad. And I can't shake it. I can't do it. I'm weak. I'm looking at it on the internet every day. It's all I think about. I dream about it. It's the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning. This is bad. I can't do it. And so I pray, oh God, conquer this covetousness. Take away this craving. It's irrational. I don't have to have it. It's killing me. I want it so bad, and I don't want to be killed. God, help me. Trust a promise. Hebrews thirteen five and 6. He gives us an exhortation. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's the exhortation. For he has said, here's the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so that text is given to us as a cure for our covetousness. It's a whisper of God. You don't need money as much as you think you do. You don't need it. I'm here. I'm with you. I am walking with you. You don't need that. You need me. I am your helper. Do not fear. You will have what you need. I am with you. Trust me. Rest in me. And then act. Turn away from the idol. Stop looking at it all the time and reading the latest reviews about it and memorizing all the specific details and talking to other people about it constantly and going to the store to see it and to feel it. Get away from it. And then thank. Thank God for delivering you from whatever that craving is. So that's one way we can win the battle against covetousness. And with God, we can indeed have victory in that battle. God is all we need. And therefore, he ought to be our highest and most treasured desire. To be more specific, all we need is Jesus. God did not offer his son as a way for us to get what we want. When God gives us Jesus and said, Here. Even if you don't realize it, He is all that you need. When we come to Jesus, we receive the forgiveness of our sins through His death and resurrection. We receive the promise of eternal life with God. We receive the promise that He will never leave us, He will never forsake us, and that He will help us through every circumstance in this life. What else do we need? What else could we possibly want? And for everything else, for all the various things we spend so much of our time coveting, God says, trust me, trust me. I will provide everything you truly need. Faith is always the answer to our discontent, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It is not poverty or wealth that leads us to contentment and trust in the Lord, but the confidence that if God provided so richly for our salvation by choosing and redeeming and calling and adopting and justifying us by sending his spirit to cause us to grow up into Christ's likeness, then surely we can count on him for the less eternal matters of our daily existence. Jesus said that even more plainly. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all these things will be added to you. The first thing, the main thing, the only thing that really matters is to trust Jesus. He's enough for us. Really, he is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, who is enough. He's enough. Help us to believe that, Lord. Help us to trust that. Help us to be reminded of that every time our heart's affections are set on something else. Lord, help us to rightly balance our wants for certain things that they not become cravings that are covetous help us to see and to view all that we have in light of their eternal significance Lord, we know that you have created all things and you've created them for our good. You've created them for our joy and our satisfaction when rightly used, when rightly oriented. I pray, God, that you help us to rightly use and rightly see and understand all that you have given us and that we not look at those things as a, an end in themselves. But they're a means to the end of seeing you, of glorifying you, of finding greater joy in you and delighting in you who has given us all things. So help us, Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God. That you would add all of these things to us. You have already given us far greater than we deserve. You've given us far greater than we could ever think to want. And you continue to pour blessing upon blessing on us. Because you are a God of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Help us, Lord, to delight in you all the more, to trust Jesus, to trust the promises of your word, and to delight in what Christ has accomplished for us, that you would be glorified and we would live lives of absolute satisfaction and joy regardless of our circumstances. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.